sprung from pirates, reeling blind in fire. I am called pirate, murderer, thief. I bear it. I will gather my prizes in a moment and become the man who pushed Draco over the edge of tomorrow. What it was to save the Pleiades does not diminish such a crime. Those with the greatest power must ultimately commit the greatest felonies. Here on the black cockatoo, I am a flame away from forever. I told her once that we had not been fit for meaning, neither for meaningful deaths. There is a death whose only meaning is that it was died to defend chaos and they are dead. Such lives and deaths preclude significance Keep guilt from the murderer, elation from the socially beneficent hero. How do other criminals support their crimes? The hollow worlds cast up their hollow children, raised only to play or fight. Is that sufficient for winning? I have struck down one third of the cosmos to raise up another and let one more go staggering. And I feel no sin on me then it must be that I am free and evil. Well, then I am free, mourning her with my laughter. Mouse, Caton, you who can speak out of the net, which one of you is the blinder for not having watched me win under this sun? I can feel fire churn by me, like you dead dead. I will grasp at dawn and evening, but I will win the noon. Welcome to The Pointless Century, where we discuss literature, culture, and politics in an attempt to figure out what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Tonight, we'll be thinking about the ramifications of space capitalism, the blurry line between modernist and postmodernist science fiction, and the role of sex and sexuality in literary works. Join us as we discuss Samuel R. Delaney's 1968 space opera, Nova. Welcome to The Pointless Century. I'm your host, visiting assistant professor Frank Fuccioe, and I'm joined here tonight with three student researchers. We have our historian, Rachel, pronounce she, her. Our poet and artist. Hi, everyone. My name is Anna Wendorf. I go by she, her. And our futurist. Hi, I'm Leah, and my pronouns are she, her. We're here to discuss Nova. What do we think is most significant about this? Leah, you and I say this is in an Afrofuturism class. I kind of want to go out on a limb and say that I would not categorize this as an Afrofuturist novel. However, it is generally known as the first science fiction novel with a Black hero. That's debatable too, depending on how we define Black. Robert Heinlein's Starship Trooper had a hero who is described as dark-skinned Filipino. If you want to judge things based on how historically people have thrown around N-bombs that might qualify as Black, 
Chip Delaney often wrote about how reading that novel had been really important to him because the character's race never comes into it until, oh, maybe... I don't know, 200 pages or so into the novel, and then it's sort of mentioned offhand as no big deal. So Delaney thought that that was a really powerful moment for him as a literal child reading that novel and sort of envisioning a world where it wouldn't matter what your ethnic background was, except as sort of just like a curiosity of, oh, that's what your name is, you know. But when he tried to sell this novel to Campbell, the great science fiction publisher who ran Astounding and later what what was called Analog Science Fiction, Campbell said to him he didn't think that science fiction readers were ready for a black hero. And so that's why he turned it down. Delaney was like, well, I'm not going to change my novel. And so he obviously published it elsewhere. And Nobody's I, ever really ready for anything. You kind of just have to force you gotta, it. You got to do it. Well, I mean, the thing about it is it was one of those cases where like, you know, Campbell was a straight up racist. You know, he might have been a nice guy to Delaney to his face, but he's on record saying some pretty nasty things in his letters to people up to and including defenses of the Confederacy and shit like that. So I think that that's what that comes down to. But yeah, even moderates, even liberals are willing to say, oh, well, we're not ready for this kind of a hero. And that's just people being greedy and cautious. And yeah, you have to make people ready for it, right? Anyway, this is personally one of my favorite novels. I don't know if I could pick an absolute favorite novel, but you know, this is a novel that every time I reread it, I find something new in it. I find something interesting in it. You can read it as a novel for pure entertainment. You can read it as a deep modernist novel. And that's how I would classify it. If I'm going to talk about the style at all, I would call this a modernist novel in terms of the way that it narrates, in terms of the way that it recapitulates the thoughts of its characters, in the detail with which it approaches things like dialogue, a sort of high modernist take on a science fiction space opera. What I was kind of thinking about was how the material that they're always going after, the Illyrian. It's kind of a parallel to like oil and gas in our world because it can only be mined at great cost or maybe manufactured and their entire system of capitalism depends on it and therefore depends on it being scarce. So when Lork von Rey and his ship goes and gets that great amount of Illyrion from the Nova, It's kind of like paralleling the switch to renewables. It basically removes the scarcity for this one most important product that the whole infrastructure depends on, just like renewables would for oil and gas. Yeah. I do think that this is a novel that demands to be understood in terms of resources. And you bring that sort of ecological eco-critical framework to reading this, which I think is important. Illyrian for this society is sort of analogous to what oil would be for ours, but also maybe even things like lithium, things like coltan, the sort of rare earth minerals that are increasingly important for our technology. And it seems like Illyrian does all of these things. It's like the most powerful battery. It's the thing that powers the starships. It's the thing that can allow a musical instrument to project sort of psychic holograms to individuals in a whole room or in a targeted fashion for decades without having to be recharged. It's basically this magical substance. 
we're told that at first it's the kind of thing that can only be more or less produced in a lab at great expense. And then as humanity expands further and further out to the outer reaches of the cosmos, we're told that it's then something that's mined in the outer colonies. They're basically in this sort of nebula, these, these sort of dust clouds made from recently exploded stars. And on the worlds and moons there, it can be mined. It seems like often it's mined underwater. And that is sort of the bedrock economy of this world. And Lork von Ray, who is a privileged child of the rising bourgeoisie of the Pleiades, with a father from Norway and a mother from Senegal, who then decides that in his vendetta against the other major family in the galaxy, the Reds, who basically are controlling the whole spaceship business in terms of being the ones who manufacture the drives for these spaceships, decides that he's going to take them down and basically decides that he's going to take down the whole galactic economy with them because he discovers that if you go into the middle of a star while it's exploding in a nova, you can grab as much Illyrian as possible. So his mission, in a certain sense for his own vendetta, in a certain sense for his own self-aggrandizement, but in a certain sense maybe also just because he thinks that it needs to be done. He's determined to drive a starship right through the center of an exploding star and grab several tons of this stuff and just completely wreck the economy by making it worthless. Uh, he wants to prove himself. You could say that. Is that the reason why you think he's doing it? Just to prove that he can? I think that's just me projecting for the most part, like applying it to my own life. But I don't think he's doing it to prove himself necessarily. I think it might be, like you said, just to screw everything up. I mean, that can be part of it. He doesn't need to have just one motive. Suffice to say, I'm sort of obsessed with this novel. And I'm looking at this section on page 186 to 187. And this is sort of one of the metafictional bits that Caton is doing. So Caton is the novelist. The novel is a dead art form, but you've got one weirdo, one overeducated weirdo who's sure that he's going to write a novel in this book. And he describes to his friend Mouse, there are three types of actions, purposeful, habitual, and gratuitous. Characters to be immediate and apprehensible must be presented by all three. And then as he thinks a little bit further, he says, I'm confounded nevertheless. The mirror of my observation turns, and what first seemed gratuitous, I see enough times to realize it is a habit. What I suspected a habit now seems part of a great design. What I originally took as purpose explodes into gratuitousness. The mirror turns again, and the character I thought, obsessed by purpose, reveals his obsession is only a habit. His habits are gratuitously meaningless. While those actions I constructed as gratuitous now reveal a most demonic end. And then there's a description of Lork von Rey, our hero. The yellow eyes had fallen from the tired star. Lork's face erupted about the scar at some antic from the mouse that Caton had missed. Rage, Caton pondered, rage. Yes, he is laughing, but how is anyone supposed to distinguish between laughter and rage in that face? But the others were laughing too. Yes, some way, somehow, we do. It ends in kind of a little weird poetry there. So Lork has this giant scar running down the front of his face. And that means 
as we hear in Caton's very obsessive narration, that it's really difficult to read his expressions. Plus, Caton is this kind of person who's very obsessive, very self-critical, always in doubt in social situations. And so what we see in him trying to read the Captain Lork Von Ray is, I don't know what his emotions are right now. And we see that in understanding his actions too, including his crucial action, which is this intent to more or less wreck the whole economy. You know, if you wanted to make Lork sound like a wonderful person, you could say it's to save the universe. It's a sort of revolutionary act. And yet we don't know how to perceive it. We don't know how to say like, is he doing it just gratuitously? Is he doing it with intent? Is he doing it out of habit? I don't know. Anna, why don't you give us your read on Lork von Ray? I think the most important point, if we're going to speak of Lork von Ray and throughout his arc here in this book, is that it's multi-layered. And I think when I showed up to the discussion, actually, you know, that you had as a part of your class, I tended to think, okay, well, he's actually just doing this as a dick measuring competition. But I think in the conversations, you know, that I've had since then, I think it can't really be, and maybe this is the gap in my knowledge too with Anderson, like we were talking about, where you can recognize something but not really know how to articulate it. I think that Lork von Ray is one of those characters where you could point to it and say, well, of course we have this foil with this other character, and of course we have this potential romantic relationship, but also, you know, there are other opportunities in here to analyze and go like, oh, actually he might be doing it for himself, you know, for other people, for the community, and also within his upper echelon of the upper echelon of his class. So all of those are possibilities. I see all of those as options, and I'm tempted to say that they all apply here, which is kind of the point that you were making already. So maybe this is redundant, but I think my most important point here is that I've grown in the past few weeks in my examination of Lord Von Ray. I mean, there, there is the aspect of what he's doing that is, I don't know, some kind of a dick measuring competition. I think that that moment of internal monologue that Delaney gives us is kind of interesting in that he explicitly is trying not to give himself excuses. When he thinks for a moment, he refers offhandedly to her. So I guess that it sort of suggests that he's thinking about Ruby Red. I know that he has obvious material goals in mind insofar as that he sees his livelihood and his status as more or less pitted against Prince Red. If he doesn't destroy Redshift Limited, then they will destroy him. And I think that that's fair. And Delaney goes out of his way to make Prince Red a completely despicable character, which is one of the sort of more cartoonish things about this book. But it allows us to justify that Lork von Ray, though he's not perfect, is certainly the hero here. I, when I read this, I want to take it as that Lork von Ray knows that the system of mining Illyrian is wrong and must end. And he's going to end it through this one heroic act. 
But as he does it, he knows that this is, you know, for his own benefit. And I think that he questions that as he's flying into the star by noting that like, well, yeah, murderers have their justifications too. I guess if we're talking about Captain Lord Von Ray, I couldn't help but compare him to Captain Nemo from 2000 Leagues Under the Sea, just because they both had this kind of extreme drive to, I don't know, get back at some part of humanity by going on this quest. Yeah, they both have like this mysteriousness that the other characters are constantly trying to figure out like, who is this guy? What are his motives? Why does he want to do this? But they follow him, right? They follow him. They want to follow him. They join up really quickly. And some of them even sort of idolize him. What's with that? I think it's because he's a very kind person. He knows how to speak the Pleiadian dialect, I guess. And he uses it to make himself seem more, I don't know, friendly. And he's very accommodating. He is, I think, throughout shown as a good leader, even though he is basically a maniac and even makes bad choices. But I love his patter when he's recruiting people on, I think it's Triton in the very first chapter. He basically promises them nothing but excitement and a good story. And at that moment, they see what happened to the man on the last crew. They see what happened to Dan. He got blinded by the Nova. He's just incredibly charismatic. I think that his ability to mix with different classes of people is crucial to the character, that we see him at the upper echelons of society. We see him speaking with intellectuals. We see him speaking with drug dealers and pimps. We see him speaking with the working class. We know that he's been a foreman to minors. We know that he has basically always been able to be conversant with all these different levels of society, even down to speaking the dialect of the fishermen and the starship sailors. And that's sort of what identifies him as a hero to me. I mean, I think that there's something that says this is a guy with style. This is a guy whose ethics are wrapped up in his sort of ease in going around the world, which is not something we see in the other ultra-privileged characters of this novel who are so awkward and so mean. If we're going to apply it to today, those qualities are actually really applicable and really necessary in someone who is going to function even in everyday life, you know, today successfully. I think it's definitely important, like you said, to have those skills. And maybe this is, I don't know, a secondary reading, but it's just where my mind went to, you know, applying, okay, how can we actually see this in our world? And actually, do we know people like Lork? that can communicate effectively with different groups of people. That's what I thought of, right? Star power, you know, celebrity, because they're so publicized, maybe because they want that connection with them. That could be part of it. Yeah, that's part of it. But he's also just an ordinary person, you know? One thing that I see with him, and this is sort of, well, one of, I suppose, several reasons why the the party in Paris near the beginning of the novel is so important, is that, well, who does he bring to the party in Paris? He brings some random-ass college dude that he met who's just like, well, I don't know, I'm going to sail around for a little while and then I'll be back for classes. 
and he brings this working class guy from Australia, Dan, who ends up being a solid crew member for him for years and years, literally until his death. And Dan, who doesn't give a shit about anyone and wants nothing more than to just go to a bar, get hammered, and pick up chicks. And on the other hand, Brian, who's completely floored by the fact that he gets to hang out with the rich and famous celebrities. Those are the two people that Lork brings with him to this party. And it's just like, I don't know, we sailed here. We just won the big starship race. And I don't know, you told me to come for a party. Here I am. That sort of aspect of him that's like, this is no big deal. My friends are whoever I find around me. That to me seems not politically radical, but radical in a social way that encapsulates Delaney's politics. For those who don't know, could you expand on that? Well, I guess that the book that I would want to read for this group, if we want to explain what I mean by just saying something like Delaney's politics, is, is called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue. Yeah, you've mentioned that one. Yeah, and it involves two sections. And the first half of the book is basically an extended memoir essay about what Times Square was like in roughly the 60s through the 80s. It was a good time. Yeah, and he's basically describing the culture of the porno theaters and the gay cruising scene and stuff like that. That was a world that existed in a very specific period. And it's something that he obviously looked back on with a lot of nostalgia. He's writing this in the 90s. And AIDS had really destroyed that scene pretty horrifically. But what finally did away with it was the gentrification of Times Square and bringing in more corporate businesses to try and make it a tourist destination. And part of that is the sort of Rudy Giuliani era of New York City. The second half of the book, like I said, it's like a slim book, but it's two very, very long essays. So the first half is a memoir. And then the second half is a sort of theoretical essay about the difference between contact and network. And Delaney describes this as sort of two modes of social interaction that are frequently confused. So network is very bounded by class. It's all about like, I know that you're from the same world as I am. And so therefore you're the kind of person that I might give a favor to. It's very much more hierarchical, even though we pretend like it's not. And Delaney contrasts this with what he calls contact. Networks are always sort of set in place or they're specifically sought out. They might be sought out by the fact that you chose to go to a particular school, and then that's what sets them in place. Whereas contact just happens to happen. Contact is just who you come into contact with. And because of that, it's a much more cross-class phenomenon. It's a situation where people from different kinds of social orders can become very close to each other just because they happen to be inhabiting the same space. Then with contact, you can contact people also within your network, but then you can do the work and go outside of your network and contact people 
like you were saying, of a different social status. You know, it all depends on what you and the other person who you're connecting with, what your motives are and what your situation is. And this is why physical spaces are so important. This is why he puts this right up against an essay about literally random sexual encounters in porno theaters. Because his idea was that what was so beautiful about that culture was that it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter where you came from. Everybody was sort of all together there. And they, you know, met each other on this very egalitarian plane in a certain sense. No, and not necessarily to idealize it too, too much, but that it was a time and a place where people who really would have no other reason to necessarily come into contact with each other would sometimes develop very, very deep friendships uh, or even, you know, relationships of various sorts just because they happen to be in the same place at the same time. I really like the beauty of meeting same place at the same time. So many people I would have never, ever been friends with if it weren't for this and other events. And it's unfortunate how COVID has changed that because think of all those missed relationships that could have happened. Yeah, I think that one thing that we don't get in Delaney's theory of network versus contact is we don't really get to see how that might or might not pertain to the virtual world. Because even though he's literally a science fiction writer, Delaney writes that essay in the 90s, and he's not really thinking too much about the internet. And even if he were, the internet in that era would be very much a class-bound thing, more than it is now. I mean, it still is. It always will be because it you know, requires some amount of equipment. But yeah, I think that one thing that I was puzzling over when I was studying with Delaney in 2005-ish is, you know, how this pertains to the internet. Because on the internet, you have aspects that are very definitely network and you have aspects that are very definitely contact. And it's sometimes hard to tell the difference. I think it's funny that Lork just goes into this random port and is like, you want a job? I'll give you a job. So like these random people and they're like, yeah, okay, I'll go with this random stranger on this very dangerous space voyage. So much of this is, I don't know if I want to say it's quite ripped from Moby Dick, but it is definitely riffing on Moby Dick type stuff. And that was the old school culture of places like Nantucket. I mean, literally, it would be shit like the way that you whittled a stick. You could have a conversation, but instead, let's whittle a stick. Whittle a stick in a particular way to tell us, you know, what your amount of experience on a ship is. We're going to read a little bit from this scene where Lork Von Ray goes to Triton Hell 3 on page 20. Let's read it in a little bit of a pirate voice. I'm here to pick out a crew of cyborg studs for a long trip. Probably along the inner arm. So alive his yellow eyes, the features around the ropey scar, under rust-rough hair grinned. But it took seconds to name the expression on the distorted mouth and brow. All right, which one of you wants a handhold halfway to the night's rim? Are you sand-footed or star-steppers, you? He pointed to the mouse. 
still sitting on the rail. You want to come along? The mouse got down. Me? You and your infernal hurdy-gurdy. If you think you can watch where you're going, I'd like somebody to juggle the air in front of my eyes and tickle my earlobes. Take the job. A grin struck the mouse's lips back from his teeth. Sure. And the grin went, I'll go. The words came from the young gypsy in an old man's whiskey whisper. Sure, I'll go, Captain. The mouse nodded and his gold earring flashed above the volcanic crevice. Hot wind uh, over the rail struck down hanks of his black hair. Do you have a mate you want to make the run with? I need a crew. The mouse, who didn't particularly like anyone in this port, looked up at the incredibly tall young man who had stopped his harassment of Dan. What about Shorty? He thumbed it, surprised Caton. Don't know him, but he's mate enough. Right then. Who else? What's the matter? Are you afraid to leave this little well of gravity funneling into that half-pint sun? He jerked his chin toward the highlighted mountains. Who's coming with us where night means forever and morning's a recollection? Ah, you know, he says you, you could leave your boring world and come with me on an adventure. One thing that I see there is that it's obvious that Caton is the one writing this book. Just the way that he describes Lork and the way that he describes the mouse and then turning on himself and saying, oh yes, the impossibly tall young man who happened to be standing there. I don't know. I just think that once you finish it, because when you finish the book, it's sort of revealed that Caton is the one writing it. If you go back to a moment like that, you get a sort of different view of it. He's writing it more poetically than I think any of the other characters would have. Oh yeah, yeah. For sure. What did you think of the style of the book in general? I mean, it's sort of a like it or hate it book, right? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't super like excited about it. I don't know. There's not a ton of action. It's mostly just people talking yeah, and at parties and stuff. Going <laughs> <laughs> to parties all the time. <laughs> not parties all the time there's a couple of parties i mean i think that it does show that the rich of this world i suppose like the rich of every world do have a lot of parties i mean i'd have a lot of parties if i could choose what i wanted to do so basically when i went through this book you know and i was i was obviously reading it i didn't really focus too much on even okay the chapters or how it's split up or you know even the, the events like the parties and things like that the things that I noticed were probably pretty small in comparison to the things that I, most people would talk about, but maybe I'm wrong. I noticed that every so often, and maybe you can answer this question, every so often there's a letter at the bottom of the page with an asterisk. And I was going to try to figure out if it spelled something or if it meant something. But Beyond that, we go through this book and we see that it jumps, I don't know, back or forward, basically to different times and also different places within this universe or this galaxy or even different galaxies or different universes. 
And I, you know, with books that we've read in the past, particularly with this podcast, we see this repeated in books like, and I keep harping on these because I've read these and I've enjoyed these kinds of books is that Company K and then even how they separate the events in something like Johnny Got His Gun or one of my personal favorites like Slaughterhouse-Five. And then to me, you know, I've been desperately trying to educate myself because no one else will do it on like these different art movements which interest me. And I really take kind of an interest into this form and how the authors go back and forward and move through time to try to you know, obviously comment on the different sectors of their worlds and obviously the social aspects of that too. But then I was thinking, is this more of a modernist technique or postmodernist technique? And I'm really new to these, so you'll probably have to correct me. But that's what I was thinking about. And that's something that I noticed within this book is that Actually, this form is repeated a lot in the 20th century, and it's something that I think that we can learn from of how do we dissect time, how do we think about how we ourselves progress through these different sects of time within our universe and within other realms that we are going to visit in this lifetime. Uh, It's a very important point, and it's sort of, if we're going to categorize this novel, it's a crucial question to ask ourselves. This is published around the same time as Slaughterhouse-Five, and yet I would categorize this as a modernist novel. Modernist insofar as science fiction needed a modernist movement, and that was what in the science fiction world was called New Wave. But Slaughterhouse-Five is definitely a postmodern novel. And as you note, a lot of what's going on there is a lot of sort of switching back and forth in time, a lot of sort of ambiguities in terms of chronology. And often people will say that like, if we're going to talk in terms of like the war novel, as it comes out, the first really postmodern war novel is Catch-22, which is published at the beginning of the 60s. By the time you get to the end of the 60s with Slaughterhouse-Five, then it's the kind of thing that people can put their finger on. They've seen it enough times they can make a category for it. And while both of those novels are definitely, definitely inheriting the kinds of things that you see developed in Company K, there's a sort of haphazardness and a sort of parodic quality that is taking it to a different place that we will call the postmodern as opposed to modernist. Whereas to my mind, the flashbacks that we get in Nova are structured in a certain way that still fit into the modernist framework. It's kind of hard to put my finger on why I would say that, and I don't think that it's not debatable, But basically, it's structured in a way that everyone should take away their same sense of how the chronology works, and it should be pretty straightforward, even down to putting those locations and dates at the top of the page. And some of the later Delaney novels, in particular, I think of a novel like Dahlgren, is definitely postmodern experimental. I, I have a lot of trouble with that book. I've read maybe about half of it over the years and not in order because it doesn't really matter if you read in order or not. It's not going to make any more sense. But I was going to say within this novel, I mean, I would argue that there are some postmodern elements to it. You know, you, I, at least from my reading, I see 
there is some skepticism within this novel within the different layers of time and there's also contradictory levels of meaning which we talked about earlier so maybe it's both is that is that even possible yeah, the making the distinction isn't always really all that important because in later modernist works, we see a lot of the indications of the postmodern, like in late James Joyce, things like Finnegan's Wake. You're already blending from modern into postmodern. And, you know, similarly, something like this, which, you know, chronologically speaking is quite late, I would still call this modernist, but then like other later Delaney works, I would say are more securely postmodern. There are a lot of gray zones, and the gray zone is, roughly speaking, anywhere between the mid-40s and the late 60s. But I think that sometimes it's best to understand the postmodern era as an era, like as a historical period, rather than as an ideology or as a style. It does sort of manifest itself as a literary style, which is really where the terminology ends up coming from. But as it feeds back into our ideas of society, it sort of then ends up being an era and it sort of ends up being like, well, how we talk about late capitalism or how we talk about the culture industry or for situationists, the spectacle. So yeah, we don't need to necessarily draw hard lines to say that, yeah, it's sort of postmodern, sort of modernist. But I think it's also fair to say that for a notoriously adolescent art form like science fiction, it's okay to be like, well, it took you guys a little bit longer to get to art novels. And so maybe your modernism happened in like the 60s and then your postmodernism was a little bit later. It's a tween. It's a late bloomer. Anna, you were very frustrated about the portrayal of Cheong, right? Well, here's the thing. Okay, they go to this party in Paris. And of course, everyone's dressed to the 11s, not to the 9s, because 9 doesn't exist in this universe. We go to the 11s or we go home. So, dude, we show up to this party looking fly as fuck. And there's this chick there, and of course she's a movie star because, you know, they do that sort of thing, but she is wearing this completely see-through outfit, and dude, it was wild. No, but to be real for a second, I'm at this point, you know, I've analyzed not so many texts, but enough texts to know why that this is in here and why this character or this, I don't even want to call her a heroine, like this bit character is wearing this outfit. I understand why it's in the novel, but then I also don't understand why. And I guess, <laughs> I guess that's, I guess that's what frustrates me and not just with a feminist reading is like, to me, I'm notorious for thinking in black and white. So if it is not one thing, it is, it is the other. And that's been my plague all my life. So what frustrates me more broadly is that if you don't really have an intent within the story and within this narrative, then why is it included? And it's, I understand It's also, gratuitous in, that, in right. that tripartite action system. It's gratuitous. That's the thing. Like, it, it is in there for a reason. But, you know, for me, those reasons aren't satisfactory. I've always taken it for granted as a dude, <laughs> but also as, as a part of the specific literary culture of late 60s science fiction, where, again, late bloomer of a genre is trying to be like, 
yes, we can deal with sex and sexuality honestly. And look, here's a critique of the culture industry. And of course, movie stars in this era, you know, she's contractually obligated to be on camera all the time. And of course, you know, maybe she'd show off by wearing a see-through parka. It makes sense within the genre patterns of its era. And yet, you know, that doesn't discount your critique, obviously. It reminded me of the point that we were talking about earlier, especially if this is a new genre and if this is a new style, like you say it is, you know, we're going to do it. If you're not ready for it, you're not ready for it. But we can do these things and we will do these things regardless. But it also reminds me of kind of the gratuitousness that we saw in Medium Cool too. It's that same era. A lot of the stuff that in that era, both in movies and in books, is sort of applauded as, look at these people, these great artists taking risks. People look back on it and they're like, eh, it's kind of just cringy, sexist shit. Yeah, that's okay. These things didn't necessarily always age well, but it is of its era. And that allows us to at least understand what's going on. I, I wouldn't necessarily change it in my mind. And let's say it's a perfect novel. You know, if we want to see it as a problem, we can also see it as a problem within its own world. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a problem, but, you know, always looking back retrospectively, it's important to examine of its era and then how much has the patriarchy really shifted. <laughs> You know, like, it hasn't really shifted that much, but I think it is still important to examine it within its era as long as we reflect on more current things. Yeah, Yeah, and as much as I think that he might want to, Delaney really isn't challenging the patriarchy in this novel. No, he's not. The most that we get is that, like, Taya is their, their best sailor other than Lork, and that's not really a whole lot. I mean, there's a lot of stupid stuff in that scene. Chiang's a kind of comic figure. Yeah, I kind of admire her for that. There's one moment at which Delaney is describing her areolas pressing against the... And, the, and not the about that. Of the, no. it's, I'm just saying he takes it to an extent that it's like, did you really need yeah. to write that? And I know that the first time you brought this up to me, I was like, well, he's gay. And that's hardly an excuse, really. I probably shouldn't, shouldn't have even tried that. Honestly, there's a lot of Delaney, even in this period in which he's still not writing literal sex scenes yet, and eventually he gets to doing that. Not that he's not doing that now, it's just that he's writing it in a notebook and not showing it to anybody. But in this period, even in the books where you don't see actual sex scenes, there is an overwhelming horniness to almost everything in terms of the character descriptions. If you know, for instance, that he has a thing for hands, you'll start to realize that the way that he describes people is like, oh my God, he's getting off on describing this person's hands. I mean, in a certain sense, those kinds of compulsions are also what makes a great writer in that he has this intense, intense attention to detail. And it's only when you notice it being applied to a woman wearing a see-through parka that's like obvious what's going on. But that's because he's, you know, filtering it through this very standard heterosexual male gaze there. But in a lot of other situations, he's doing it, you know, through his own gaze, where maybe he's focused on feet or hands or whatever. And it's that intense description just comes through as an intense description. I did not know that about the hands, but if we read times square red times square blue or any of his other work, it'll be interesting to, you know, look for that. 
I did think it was kind of gross the way Chiang <laughs> was described. Just, just straight yeah. up gross. <laughs> I guess I was kind of thinking about how in early Star Trek, all the girls wore these like really skimpy outfits. And we look at it today and it's like, why were the men making them wear these really short skirts? But then in the past, it's kind of empowering for them to be able to wear these short skirts and still do their work. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I think that when we think about what's going on in the 60s, there's so many pieces that are in motion that it's kind of hard to process it. Like things that we today can more comfortably separate out are all moving at the same time. So like the question of being able to wear what you want to wear is wrapped up in the question of how people look at you in a way that is easier for us to separate right now in a world where we have more choices and where those choices are less politicized. But they sort of come onto the table all simultaneously in the 60s. And especially if they're moving, we have to think about how this is situated against the backdrop of the various social movements that are going on at the time. So obviously you have the women's movement, obviously you have civil rights, but then if you move into the 60s and 70s, like you said, I don't know if they always were moving together, but then, you know, especially if we talk about this book and women's rights, they're moving together at the same time. So then, you know, that is changing slowly perception slowly 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 i would argue even up until what would they call it the third wave i think within you know the 90s with more sexual liberation and things like that and it's important to you know examine the gratuitousness of a character like that against the separate periods much like the separate periods in the book as you talk about the social movements of the era, if I'm going to put a line of demarcation for Delaney's writing in terms of the modernist phase versus the postmodernist phase, I'd have to go with Stonewall. And that, to me, then pegs this novel as his last modernist science fiction novel. It's his last science fiction novel before Stonewall. And the other novel of his, which I, uh, I I have not read it in a very long time, but at one point in my life, I probably did refer to it as one of my favorite novels, in which I sort of hesitate to suggest that we read because it's a novel that many people can't get more than a few pages into. One of the pornographic novels that he wrote, which is called Hog. He also finished in this same period of time before Stonewall. It is a vicious, violent, I want to call it a despicable novel. It's a magnificently despicable novel where he is as precisely as possible setting down the most horrific things he can. It is a novel about a rapist for hire and a child molester. I can't ask you to read it because it's such a horrible, horrible thing, but it is such a precise and such an angry novel. And it is also what I would call like a pinnacle of his modernism in that sort of very precise, very detailed setting down of the gratuitous taken to this extreme degree. Even in the same bag as Mafarka or Parable of the Sower, or even to the nth degree beyond that. 
It is a novel that, to describe it as a pornographic novel, people do not quite understand what you mean by that. It is not like a novel that includes some sex. It is not a novel that includes some rape scenes. It is a novel that, in almost every chapter, on almost every page, something horrific is happening. And that is uh, what I take it to be. It was a novel that was like, considered unpublishable for a very long time. It was written, like I said, right before Stonewall and it was published in the 90s. That's basically how long it took for anyone to be willing to go out on a limb for it. And I take it to be Delaney's effort to state that, you know, in a world that claimed that certain sexual activities were outside the boundaries, this was the reality of the horror that you allow when you make things secret. I, I think that that was his point. I think that's one person's blurb on it was these are the horrors that civilization exists to forget. And like I said, there was a point in my life when I was maybe a little bit of a crazier person where I would just straight up be like, this is my favorite novel. And I don't know if I could say that. I don't know if I could go back and read it and actually with a straight face just be like, yes, I can read this. Because... I mean, it sounds so stupid to say, like, as a father, I think that that's real bullshit. But it is true that as you get older, certainly, and especially once part of your life is learning how to protect people, it's a little harder for you to take things as like, oh, it's just art, you know. Why do I mention this? I mention this because all of the sex and all of the violence that is not in Nova, that we keep expecting to see in Nova and that is not there, Delaney is putting at the same time he's writing Nova into this other book that's like the most horrible book you could possibly imagine. And that they're both in a certain sense modernist masterpieces in these very stylized and precise accounts of things. Gather around kids because it's story time. So picture this, it's the first few weeks of college, you're absolutely broke, you're starting to get into things like obviously school, friends, boys, clubs, until you meet your dingbat English professor and he offers you a research job somehow. And then fast forward to almost two years later, I've had the most fun I've almost ever had with two amazing people. But like we said, we're in the void, and if you want us to keep talking about Russia in the 90s, well, Soldier Boys watched the sunset. Unfortunately, we do still live in a capitalistic hellhole. Join our Patreon. We're going to need your money if you want us to keep fucking around. Please consider donating. We'd really appreciate it. What do you think sex and sexuality are doing in this novel, if anything? I mean, does this seem like a typical science fiction presentation of sex and sexuality? Or is this oddly prude for the genre? Or is it oddly frank or anything like that? I think it's mostly normal. Most of the sexuality is like implicit. It's not really there. We talked a little in class about how readers have a few theories about maybe latent sexualities in this novel. The most common reading is that there's something incestuous going on between Prince Red and his sister Ruby Red. Do you think that that scans for you as plausible or, or what? 
Yeah, I think it's kind of plausible with the way that Prince like defends her so harshly and he always wants to, I don't know, keep her near him and whenever Lork gets close to her and he's like, no, get away from my sister. And at one point, I don't know where it is, but Lork is like, you and Ruby? And that's kind of suggesting something. Like he just realized that something else was going on between them. You wanna. There is a lot of you wanna in this novel, which is, I think, part of what Leo was getting at, that there's a sort of coded sense of the moments where we're supposed to fill in. If you've ever seen the show Archer, there's this relationship. They come so close every time. And then, you know, every time it stops to the point where it's restrained and then taking that reading, you know, immediately that novel reminded me of that show. But also, you know, if we go through and examine this novel, and again, not that I've read enough science fiction, I haven't, I haven't read enough of anything. But I'm saying that it was surprisingly restrained, at least for me going through and watching their relationship develop, you know, I was always expecting more. I wonder why would he do such a thing like that, you know? Why would he be so restrained in comparison? What is the point of that? You go to a certain point and then you stop and then it's like, well, what's your point for stopping and not just continuing writing? That was long-winded and that did not make sense, but hopefully you get something. No, I, I feel the same thing, honestly, as I read this. I think, to my mind, when I read this book, I feel like Chip is really, really holding back. And I'm not sure that people reading this in 68, 69 would know that. But people who would read the kind of stuff that he's coming out with in the 70s, and especially if you realize that he wrote this secret rape porn novel at the same time as he was writing this, then you would realize that there's some very, very dark things going on under the surface there that we're, in a certain sense, supposed to read into this novel. And so I do basically believe in all the interpretations that come along with this that have sort of become canonical or semi-canonical the first of which being this incest reading where Prince Red and Ruby Red have, a, I don't know if I want to call it a relationship even. I think that Prince is an abuser. I think that Prince has been abusing his sister since they were children together and that he's carried that all the way through into her adulthood and that he holds this over her and that he uses this to manipulate her. I mean, he's a true sociopath is the word that I would use. I think that that's fair. He does not care about other people. He is only interested in his own needs. And he is sort of even incapable of imagining what things might be like for others. And at the tiniest slights will torment them. Poor Brian. He basically like followed him around his whole life to make sure he failed at every turn. Yeah, and it was all because Brian sees Prince wearing this glove. And because Brian is a doofus who's really interested in the fashion choices of celebrities, he says something stupid like, oh, is that glove what they're wearing these days on Earth? 
and Prince takes great offense because it's a glove covering his mechanical arm. And then, yeah, destroys his life. And we hear about this when Prince records this sort of audio threat for Lork at the Institute. In earlier versions of this novel, that section was cut out because it was thought to be like too much of a cartoon Bond villain thing. But I love that bit. And I'm so glad that in the reprint, Delaney made a point of letting them put it back in because it does explain what happened to Brian. And I think that that's kind of important. There's part of me that wants to read and therefore maybe in a certain way wants to write the novel of Brian's life. But it probably wouldn't be a very good novel anyway, because it's just this dope who, for reasons that he can't possibly understand, keeps having horrible things happen to him. At the party in Paris where Lork comes on to Ruby, and she's listing the reasons why they can't be together. She's even flirting with him while she does it. What are you high on anyway? Whatever it is, it becomes you. <laughs> Will you go? He wants him to come with her, you know, to just escape from Earth and escape from all this bullshit and to just go off onto the stars and make her own life with him. It's just a lot of bullshit to him. Maybe, you know, life with Lork Von Ray wouldn't be that great. Who knows? But her lists of reasons why she can't go with him are, I think, really important. Because it's terribly rude. I don't know how you do it back on Orc for a hostess to run out on her party before midnight. After midnight, then. Second, she sipped the drink and wrinkled her nose. He was surprised, shocked, that her clear, clear skin could support anything so human as a wrinkle. All right, Chip, just cool it. Prince has been planning this party for months, and I don't want to upset him by not showing up when I promise. Lork touched his fingers to her cheek. Third, her eyes snapped from the brim of her glass to lock his. I'm Aaron Red's daughter, and you are the dark, red-haired, high, handsome son, she turned her head away, of a blonde thief cold air on his fingertips where her warm air had been. Lork put his palm against her face, slid his fingers into her hair. Ruby turned away from his hand and stepped onto the spiral lift. She rose up and away, adding, and you haven't got much pride if you let Prince mock you the way he does. So we get a couple of things there. We get Delaney's obsessive attention to detail and his also sort of constant simmering horniness. But we also get one vision of the world in which like, well, we can do whatever we want. And another vision of the world where like, I have been bound by these rules my whole life and this is how it is. When you read or when you hear that description of him, how much do you think dark plays in that description of him? or perhaps in concert with things like red-haired and blonde. Put another way, how much of this is about race and how much of it is about class? I think that it's still intertwined, you know? Yeah. I took a class this winter um, and part of it was the distinction of class solely based on skin tone. And I think still to this day, it's perceived that class and race are perceived as different things at least for non-white people. Like as he was writing this after the civil rights movement, but before Stonewall, 
he still has those like social normities that are still influencing his writing even though it is set in the future he still has those social norms coming from the civil rights era yeah i think that there's a big question here in terms of how race is going to operate 1100 years in the future it's not like there's no racism in this world but it is different from the racism that we see now I mean, the character Mouse, who's described as a gypsy, you know, increasingly people are saying that we should use the term Roma or Romani. His people are persecuted on earth, we're told, mainly because they've chosen not to get sockets that let them plug into machinery. And yet it certainly seems to be a racial thing. And he describes that persecution in terms that are very, very close to the kinds of lynchings that Delaney would have heard stories about from his parents, his uncles, his grandparents. And similarly, we see sort of prejudice against people from the Pleiades, against people from the outer colonies. And we know that those people, the further out you get from Draco, are more and more people of color. And so even for Lork von Ray, who is the sort of upper level of bourgeois Pleiadean society, the fact that he's of mixed race does play into the way that people talk about him or perceive him, I think. Well, there is like a lot of prejudice against the Pleiadians and they're called barbarians and pirates and I don't know, dirt by Prince and Ruby Red. And it's almost like this is what racism kind of evolved into. It's still like the fear of people who are living in a different area than you or living differently than you. Now it's just against the Pleiadians and just because they live in a different part of the galaxy and their race is also kind of tied up in that. And it's intertwined with class too. And the Mm -hmm. way that Delaney describes it through Caton and half the reason why Caton exists in this novel is to explain everything to us is that the Pleiades are settled by the bourgeoisie from Earth or Draco is sort of the sort of extended boundaries of Earth. And then the outer colonies are settled by the global working class and therefore are mainly people of color. Lork von Ray's family is one of the first successful families in the Pleiades. They're sort of, I don't know, merchants, pirates, however you might want to describe them, maybe even freedom fighters. I actually really think that that character is really interesting and we're going to connect it back to class and even race. I see the split clearly between where he comes from with Harford and stuff. I see the split between him and then also Mouse, and maybe we've already mentioned that, but I think him as a character is really interesting. And maybe that's just me just saying like, okay, well, is that aspirational or is there something more to the way that they're juxtaposed with each other? I don't know. Oh, I think there's something more to it, but I think that People have read a few different things into it. With Caton or Katin, we get the artist who obsesses over everything he does, who thinks very hard about it, who puts it off and wants to plan it perfectly. And it's, my God, at my worst, I'm completely him, you know? I mean, you hear me on this fucker every week, just mouthing off until everyone around me is completely sick of my voice. And and I'm sure that there are aspects of that character that Delaney was, you know, absolutely drawing from himself in his worst moments. 
but he's also charming in a sort of weird way and he's also our sort of guide if we didn't have that character we really would have no idea what the fuck was going on but that's contrasted with mouse who's the other extreme of the artist who just sort of does what he does and he improvises and he creates out of nothing i don't know it's it's really beautiful uh why are they friends how are they friends they get on each other's nerves even but they do have this close close bond yeah they get on each other's nerves but i don't know maybe you know what they search for what they don't have in each other and maybe that's too idealistic when you look at relationships and what the ideal friendship is but i see it as in a weird way they complement each other you know most people on paper might say that okay well these two actually wouldn't relate to each other but I guess if I'm going to read it for my own life, my friends or some of the friends that I have now are the complete opposite of me. And, you know, I find value in what they have that I don't. They push me to do things, and I really appreciate that. There's this wonderful moment where Caton is trying to puzzle over, like, how he's going to say what he wants to say in his novel. He's basically trying to reinvent this art form. And then Mouse says to him, I was born. I must die. I'm in pain. Help me. There. Did I do good enough for you? <laughs> this is like, yeah, I said it all. Fuck off. <laughs> I would definitely have to agree with Anna. I, I appreciate the friends that are different from me, though the ones that are different and similar at the same time are the ones that I form the closest relationships with, such as Anna. We're different enough, but she's such a hard ass on me that she motivates me to keep going. And I almost dropped my winter class if it weren't for her and Madeline. So I'd have to agree with the sentiments of her that differences with your friends do make the strongest relationships and have the most meaningful bonds. Do you think there's anything more than a friendship going on between these two? It'd be a little late in homosexuality. <laughs> what do you think, Leah? You mentioned in class that moment where they like share the lollipop or something. Yeah, there's like (laughs) some hard candy and Mouse just like takes it out of his mouth and he's like, I'm done with it. Do you want some? (laughs) It's weird. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about it for a long time because it's something that I've sort of had my feelers out for because I know that with Delaney's interest in Moby Dick, and in a certain way, this is a rewriting of Moby Dick, and with the obvious fact that there's a lot of suppressed sexuality here. If you think about characters like Sebastian and Taya, where it's like they join up together and we never question the fact that they're sexual partners because it's a man and a woman. Okay, well, here are a man and a man who join up together and they're very, very close friends for reasons that we can't really quite explain. They're sort of an odd couple. I think that maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that you have to read it this way, but I I think about it, like every time I read it, I try and see if I can find it in there. If maybe there's a romance that develops over the course of the novel, but that we don't see all of it because it's just the kind of thing that you didn't necessarily show. I go back and forth on this. It's a possibility though. Like saying the thing within the period that can't be said, so you're not saying it. Yeah. Yeah, it is possible. This novel in particular is seen as a precursor to cyberpunk. 
And that's because you literally have characters plugging into machines. This is all sort of explained as a solution to the, I guess, problem of alienated labor, which I'm kind of skeptical about. The characters are referred to as cyborg studs. So they're like half human, half machine. What were your thoughts on the whole cyborg aspect of this novel? It really reminded me of this young adult book that I read as a kid. It's called The Clone Codes. And then the second one is The Cyborg Codes, where they're in um, a dystopian future in the United States. And people are determined to be cyborgs and basically not treated as human because they aren't. But like they're not treated like they have a consciousness. And it just really reminded me of that. Is that taking on the sort of, I don't know, I want to say like Phil Dickian premise of created cyborgs, cyborgs that are created from birth, from manufacture as cyborgs, which is actually quite different than Delaney's premise where you have natural born humans then made into cyborgs through implantation. And because he takes it in this opposite direction, it actually cuts the other way to the effect that if you're not cyborg, you're considered less human more or less, right? And that's why we see that the the gypsies are persecuted and we get this description of a lynching that Caton explains as basically being something that comes out of this notion that if you're not plugging into work, then you're not really a worker, you're not really human. And he says it's this one cross-class, cross-cultural phenomenon that everybody does this, even Lork Von Ray, one of the wealthiest men in the galaxy, plugs directly into his ship to pilot it. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that more people didn't object to becoming a cyborg because that would be something that I would be kind of iffy about at the least getting, I don't know, plugs into your wrists and your neck. Yeah. That seems really invasive and scary, I guess. But it's necessary for the way people live. Like I just watched an episode of Doctor Who where they were on Station 5 and the only way that you could truly live your life to access the computers to really be in touch with the world, you had to have either a chip in the back of your head to be able to access computers or you had a port in your forehead that opened up when you click your fingers and go like, it would take white noise, but it would all directly go into your brain and it was necessary. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to live. And we sort of see similar stuff on Black Mirror, you know, if you want to go for a less dweeby example, where there's resistance to adoption. And then once it meets critical mass, adoption is universal. I certainly saw this with smartphones. I was kind of shocked with cell phones in general and then smartphones in particular to see the kind of universal adoption that occurred as quickly as it did. And right now we're at a point where sort of similarly, you can't really be, I mean, you can, of course, be a social media resistor. You can, of course, be a smartphone resistor, but it's considered a weird thing. It's definitely considered the exception and it makes your life harder in very practical ways. It makes work life harder. And obviously that's less invasive than literally installing plugs. But if you imagine that your educational systems are built into that, your work systems are built into that, I'm sure there was some time of resistance, but this is set in the distant future. It's what, the 32nd century, if I'm remembering correctly. So by now those you know arguments have been fully hashed out. Yeah, and it's also a different perspective for us, me, Anna, and Leah, because when we were in middle school, at least at my middle school, it was sort of on the verge, like you were the cool kid if you had an iPhone or a smartphone. You were like the rich kid that lived in the burbs if you had them, but some kids still 
they didn't necessarily have flip phones like I had one where it was like a little oval touch screen and then you like slid that up and then it shifted it had a little keyboard but I just remember that at the beginning of middle school like only the cool kids had iPhones specifically and by eighth grade everybody had those multicolored iPhone 4s yeah it was a pretty fast process if we can like improve our lives it's more easily accepted, but phones are necessary for everyday work now, especially here on campus, because we require Duo Mobile. Yeah, um, that's a really good example. So you would literally be locked out of your accounts if you didn't have a phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were, all three of us were like on the verge of when smart things really became a thing. Like I remember before we had an iPad, but it was the family iPad. What do you guys remember? I remember we had a Wii and that was a big mm-hmm. thing. Everyone had a Wii and it was like the coolest thing. We would play it with our families all the time, like Friday nights or something. Wii Fit. Yes. (laughs) Did you folks skip Facebook? Yeah, my understanding is Facebook's like an old person thing now. Mm -mm. Not when Um, we first joined. Yeah, when I I got it when I was 14 and it was kind of a cool thing for, I don't know, three years. And then it kind of fell off in coolness. Facebook and Kick Messenger were really the only things how people communicated. 2011 was when Snapchat came out, and that was starting to rise, but it wasn't initially there. It was sort of transformative, but I think part of why this was accepted so much, especially like in the 32nd century with the Borgs, is because it improved people's lives, and it made communication and dealing with the world easier. So I think if it can improve your life and make things easier for you without as much labor, I think that's why it's so easily picked up by other populations. I was also thinking about like, think about how how many people object to vaccinations today. Something that would obviously make your life better, but you just don't do it because you just object to it for some weird reason. You can't see that it benefits you until you actually think about it. Yeah. Well, and I think that this is actually something that the science fiction authors in general have really dropped the ball on. I think that maybe you get a little bit of this in some of the, I guess, like Cold War paranoia 1950s stuff. But at least as I see it, you don't get it very much in Delaney's work, even though he does in some works imagine something like an internet. It's almost like he sees a thing like Wikipedia existing, but he doesn't anticipate something like a chat room or like a Chan board. And I'm sure that there are some science fiction writers who have dealt with this, but in the, let's say, the new wave to cyberpunk continuum, which is really what's relevant here, talking about Nova, you don't get that sense of the added communications potentials of the future could lead to a new dark age of anti-scientific attitudes, which is more or less where we're at right now. I don't, I don't want to quite say that we're in a new dark age, but, but we are on the precipice of a new dark age. I think that I feel confident in saying that, like we risk sliding into a new dark age at this point because we did not really account for the potential of bad information to completely drown out good information or misinformation to drown out accurate information, if you want to put it that way. Like the anti-vax movement, the version of it that we see now is a purely 21st century phenomenon. There were some people who resisted vaccinations in the 20th century, but even when you had terrible catastrophic mistakes, like in the first polio vaccine rollout, you didn't have this kind of anti-vax movement. 
people in general understood that, you know, on the whole, it was a good idea. One thing that fascinates me about the cyborg setup, and I love that Lork calls them puppets because you imagine them cabled in like they have strings attached to them. So whenever they are ready to like go on autopilot, Lork says, puppets, cut your strings. (laughs) And they got sockets, right? One in each wrist, one at the back of the neck, and one at the base of the spine. Uh, So it's four sockets. And there are two things that I've noticed in the description. And you know, Delaney has this really intense focus on details and he'll focus on details that aren't important for any clear reason, but he'll spin out whole things from them and you kind of have to piece them together. So there's a mention in the party scene in Paris of women with pre-Ashton Clark haircuts. And you don't really understand what that means until you figure out who Ashton Clark is later on in the novel. And you realize that everybody has a plug socket in the back of their neck. So pre-Ashton Clark haircut, as I interpret it then, is just women wearing long hair. That that's not something that you do ordinarily in this world because it gets in the way of plugging your neck in. The other thing is the fact that almost all of the spacemen, sailors, whatever you want to call them, wear vests all the time. Which seems like an odd and I suppose very 1967-1968 choice, but (laughs) I think that's because it's annoying to plug in your wrists and again, the base of your spine if you're wearing a jacket. So I'm imagining a vest that not only leaves their arms free, of course, but also maybe has like a little slit in the back to make it easy to plug in there. We also get in this story a couple of hints of things that people might do with their feet which I think is cool. So we have characters that wear like one sandal or one shoe. In the ships that we see, there's artificial gravity, but we're also told that there are other ships that have zero gravity. The sailors who work on those ships learn to use their at least one foot, so they tend to just wear one shoe. And Delaney uses this in a bunch of his novels, even ones that aren't obviously science fiction. And I wonder if actually it might be him making reference to Jason and the Argonauts, but I don't even know what that would mean. It's just like he he does all kinds of weird mythological things here that I'm not really prepared to get into. But the one shoe thing is interesting. And we do see scenes where characters eat with their feet, if you're paying attention. Uh, And we're told that all diseases have been cured, which is overly optimistic in my mind. (laughs) Like they don't have to worry about things getting dirty. Yeah, that kind of grossed me out. Like the thought of not cleaning anything ever. You. Especially now. Yeah, Yeah, true. There's an incredible optimism in this novel and like what the future has in store. It's out of place after 1968. We could say this is a pre-Nixon novel. This is a novel where the space race is still in full swing and there is hope of some kind of future liberatory political system that's sort of tied to progress in a way that kind of seems alien to us more than 50 years later after this sort of Reagan backlash has really dominated the politics of our lives. It's pre so many things. It's pre Stonewall. It's pre AIDS. It's, like I said, pre Nixon. And so there are certain elements of it that do seem, to my mind, very progressive in a very pure and like almost naive way. That sort of adds to why I want to call this maybe science fiction's great high modernist novel that there isn't that sort of cynicism and fragmentation that we would expect to see in a postmodern outlook. 
I don't know. Do you think that we're supposed to buy the whole Ashton Clark thing that, oh, well, people are no longer alienated from their labor. They can work in any job and they actually really enjoy it because they can plug into things. And it's like you are the machine. You become the spaceship. Isn't that cool? Do we buy that? I definitely don't buy the fact that if you can do any job or if you can actually plug into your work, it'll make you more happy. There's a couple of different directions to analyze this from. And the one that immediately popped into my mind because it's, you know, within our recent conversations is, is Mafarka. And, you know, in that novel, you have the blurring between, and maybe, you know, it's not a perfect example, but you have the blurring between man and animal and then also man and machine and it but this is really the futurist dream that the that the human can become machine right right exactly exactly and people will say well yeah isn't it making your life better but i see it as the synthesis of being overrun by the very system which controls you so yeah, yeah. i guess in short i don't buy it at all yeah yeah same i don't really buy it because I think in the book, there's moments where they're talking about the people working in the mines, and the mines are still like horrible places to work, even though they have these cyborg plugs. They don't want to work there. The system's still bad, even though they have this technology. It doesn't fix everything. They've tried to solve things through this human-machine interface, but it's still capitalism. The, the, the problems are still all there. I think it dehumanizes people because if you're integrating yourself with the computer, it's easier to see the computer as non-human and it's easier to overuse and extort these people because in our sense, they're not fully human. So I think it's just de dehumanizing them and having them more susceptible to be abused in the system. I question your perspective on that in the strict sense that I don't think that they're less than human. I think that that's our own personal prejudices to perceive it that way. But I do think that within the structure of capitalism, they are equally unhuman to how any human is. Does, does that make sense? By subordinating themselves to literal capital, to the literal machinery that the ruling class owns, by becoming an extension of that machinery, they can be used by capital in a way that suits that bourgeois class and that doesn't really serve the purposes of any working class that just allows things to move a little smoother and insofar as like they can easily change between this or that or the other industry they can easily you know learn how to do a new thing and so on and so forth it really just smooths the road for capital if you can obviously perform any tasks, then oh my gosh, isn't that the dream if you're ruling over people, you know, to be able to pick whichever sector for whichever person you're controlling to have it benefit you. But yeah, I mean, yeah. basically, I already said that. And it's really interesting that a lot of the students who wrote essays that dealt with Nova for this class discussed this aspect of the novel as something that to them was dystopian, that these people were basically subordinate to machines and that they, you know, sort of are tricked into enjoying what they're doing. But I don't think that Delaney intends it that way. 
I've been trying to use the modern versus postmodern dichotomy, but that's sort of more of a stylistic dichotomy. I think that perhaps the industrial and economic dichotomy would be that novels like this, and the other example I would give would be Vonnegut's Player Piano, are operating in a sort of Fordist paradigm, which is to say that it's not yet dealing with the problems of neoliberalism, which is what we're more familiar with. But neoliberalism hasn't really become a thing yet, so it's not really something that they're interested in contending with. That there's, like I said, Vonnegut in Player Piano, or here Delaney in Nova, are dealing with the problem of, well, as work gets easier and more automated, won't people feel like work is meaningless? And that's kind of a luxury concern when actually the problem is that capital's always going to be squeezing you. And it isn't a question of whether there's meaning to your work because there's never been any meaning to your work. It was all bullshit to begin with. I mean, yeah. And you know, that's the goal. You try to trick yourself into thinking that you're not replaceable, but you are. And, you know, I see this more as, okay, what will the limits of work life be if we keep going the way that we're going? And, you know, with all the various systems and processes that we've talked about. And also- it's not it's not dealing with any of the problems that we see in our world. It's not dealing with any of the neoliberal problems of casualization or gig economy or stuff like that, right? And that's why I mean, like, it's purely Fordist. It's just a question of which machines you're operating. Right. I also thought about, you know, when we talk about things that have come and gone that were deemed, you know, to be radical for the time. And then they were, you know, like we were talking about, they were more adopted. And even with the technology that has come to pass, like smartphones. So basically, it does surprise me that so many people thought that, you know, it was dystopian because, yeah, as as we sit now, it might be hard to imagine a world in which we're living like that, but in some ways we already are. So when will that radical idea actually be our reality or, you know, if you can define reality and stuff like that. And, you know, as for my first point about what the limits of work life will be, and and you're right, they're not dealing with the same problems that we are, my point with that is applying it to the 21st century and you know as we go on i mean we'll be long dead but trying to reflect on what it will look like for us or future generations but that's that's what all these novels encourage us to do and i think that maybe as i get older i do think i'm getting better at reading And to bring it back to Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, there's a moment in Times Square Red, Times Square Blue in that second part where he's writing that essay about contact versus network, where he says that he's not a Marxist, he's more of a Marxian. And I've, for years, didn't understand what the hell he meant by that. I've come to conclude that what he means by that is that he does not see nor seek the overthrow of the capitalist system. I mean, look, it's the 32nd century and it's still capitalist as fuck. He's not Kim Stanley Robinson. He's not writing futures in which we're trying to imagine how capitalism slowly disintegrates or how it's overthrown. He's not Ursula Le Guin. He's not doing any of that radical stuff. He's just imagining a better, different type of capitalism. 
And I don't think that that means that he thinks that capitalism is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I think that it's just sort of that he's made his peace with it. And he's trying to imagine how other people make their peace with it and how they navigate in that world. And when he says that he's a Marxian, what he's saying is that he does think that class structures organize the way that we relate to each other. He does think that economics are really at the root of everything. We absolutely see this in this novel, no doubt. It all comes down to economics and class structures are super important. But that doesn't mean that he interprets people purely by their position within their class structure. He also sees that, you know, different types of people can be good or bad or in between, depending on how they operate within those class structures. And that the type of politics that he seeks is a world where relations between the classes can be made to be as pleasant and as productive and where possible egalitarian, though maybe, you know, that's not always completely, you know, workable. I mean, if you have any class structure, it can't really be egalitarian. But if you have a character like Lork von Ray, who at least can on the personal level see himself in some ways as an equal to people who are a very different class from himself, that sort of social equality obviously is emphasized in this novel. And I think that the way that he's depicting this post-Ashton Clark world is that those sort of niceties have been smoothed over, that people can get along with each other because they have this one thing that binds them all together. And where he critiques it, it's the critique of that, like, well, that leaves somebody out, people who don't adopt this way of life. Or where he says, well, there are still these minds, and that's obviously a level of exploitation. He doesn't really let up on that. You know, he definitely indicates that that is a problem, but he doesn't dwell on it either, nor does he envision necessarily that that's going to boil over into some kind of a revolution. What he envisions is this kind of wild disruptor just changing the whole economy with one fell swoop. And maybe in a certain sense, that's what we're more used to seeing in America. Maybe in a certain sense, that seems believable. But it's a vision of the world that seems dark in ways that he doesn't perhaps always fully appreciate. I do want to talk about the section later on in the novel that takes place in the city of dreadful night, which just completely fascinates me. The explorer who decided to name the outermost of the dim dead sisters planets Elysium had indulged a poor joke. With all the planoforming devices available, it was still a frozen cinder ellipsing at trans-Plutonian distances from her ghost light, barren and uninhabited. Someone had once proposed the doubtful theory that all three of the remaining worlds were really moons that had been in the shadow of a gigantic planet when the catastrophe occurred, and thus escaped the fury that had annihilated their protector. Poor moon, if moon you are, Caton thought as they swept by. You've done no better as a world. A lesson there in pretension. Once the explorer explored further, he regained his sense of proportion. His grin faltered at the middle world. He called it dis. 
His fate suggests the agenbite of Inwit came too late. Flaunting the gods, even once reaped a classical reward. His ship crashed on the innermost planet. It remained unnamed and to this day was referred to as the other world without pomp, circumstance, or capital letters. It was not till a second explorer came that the other world suddenly disclosed a secret. Those great plains, which from a distance had been judged solidified slag, turned out to be oceans of water, frozen. True, the top 10 to 100 feet was mixed with every sort of rubble and refuse. It was finally decided that the other world had once been entirely under two to 25 miles of water. Perhaps 1920ths had steamed into space when the dim dead sister went nova. This left a percentage of dry land just a little higher than Earth's. The unbreathable atmosphere, the total lack of organic life, the sub-sub temperatures, minor problems compared to the gift of seas and easily corrected. So... Humanity in the early days of the Pleiades encroached on the charred and frozen land. The other world's oldest city, though not its biggest, for the commercial and economic shift over the past 300 years had shifted the population, had been carefully named the City of Dreadful Night. So you've got this planet orbiting around a completely burnt out star that went nova, oh, who knows, millions of years ago. And at trans-Plutonian distances, so like further away than any object in our solar system. If you're living on this planet, and this is why they called the main city the city of the dreadful night, it's just a night sky around you. There's no daytime. And you probably wouldn't even be able to pick out your own star which you were orbiting in the night sky because it's just a burnt out dwarf. Maybe it'd be slightly larger, but not very bright. I'm fascinated by this idea of then like, what does that world look like? What do the people who live in that city feel like? It's a nightmare that knows what it is. You know, it's, it's self-aware in the way that so many other people and areas, I think, that Delaney is interested in in his writing are. This is, of course, also where we see this large, I don't know what you want to call it. In Triton, Delaney would call this part of town like an unlicensed sector, or maybe we would call it like a red light district or something like that. You know, they go looking for drugs and there are bars and it's sort of like a sensory bath you could do, you know, cheap thrills and basically ways that miners could spend their money and that people who hadn't perhaps chosen that life yet might get tricked into that life. It was really interesting when you said Dees, and I guess that's how I pronounce it, but it makes me wonder what connections Delaney had, and you know, I wonder if you ever read The Inferno, because obviously, you know, if you've ever read The Inferno, like the, if I remember right, Dees is actually another name for hell or for, you know, the devil himself. I'm I'm sure that he was familiar with it. In fact, more so than I am. And, you know, it's really cool in the way that he describes it because it's also akin to how they describe, you know, the lowest circle of hell. They describe it as a very burnt out and icy place. So I thought that was a cool connection. I mean, to me, this is kind of the climactic scene. I mean, I suppose it's not technically because there's, you know, the whole Nova to get to and all that. But to me, it's the most important action moment in the novel. I mean, I think with anything, you know, there's a few ways that you could answer that question, but I don't know. Maybe it's scary because there are more unknowns 
because they're in a world of information, not knowing as much about their surroundings or what will happen could factor into their fear levels. I guess that they don't know what's going to happen. This is sort of the last place they stop before they ultimately go out to try and intercept the Nova. They understand that they may not survive this, or if they do, they may be horribly wounded like Dan was. And so a lot of this section of the novel is they're going to have one last big party until they take off for the Nova. And then they, of course, end up having this showdown with Prince and Ruby Red. Yeah, like it's kind of their last stop before the unknown, and it's scary because they may or may not die. Reading this, I feel like your knee-jerk reaction would have to be, well, okay, Delaney is obviously making a cultural commentary about these things, but I don't think it's that, and I don't necessarily think it's negative either. You know, and maybe it's set up in a way where you go through and you read it, and you know, when I was reading it, I think you're made to feel like, oh, they're doing something in this part of town, like they're doing something wrong. What if it's the opposite of that? And maybe I don't know how to articulate that. I don't think that we're ever sort of led to believe that they're doing anything wrong. I think that they're doing exactly what everybody else does in that part of town. They even run into a cop at one point and the cop's just like, what's going on here? And Lork's like, we just have some uh, bliss. And the cop's like, oh, I thought you were doing something illegal. He was like, do you want some? And then the cop, the cop huffs some bliffs. So like, it's the first moment at which it's revealed to us that bliss isn't actually even illegal. It's an accepted and used drug. I'm sure there are other things that people are doing in this sector that are illegal. The cop says to him like, oh, I thought it might've been something dangerous, you know? So I don't think that they're doing anything that they shouldn't be doing. And I guess that's just the way that I read it. And I forgot about that part, honestly. It's a funny moment. But I think that this is something that Delaney is doing intentionally, though. And you see him doing it in a number of his novels. In Triton, he has literal sectors in every city that are just called unlicensed sectors, which is basically just there's some zone where there are no laws because the thinking of the city planners was these zones develop inevitably anyway, so you might as well just design them into the city. The ambiguity between what's legal and what's illegal is completely intentional for Delaney here and for obvious reasons that he's imagining worlds where things that we expect to be illegal are legal. That's pretty intentional. And like I said, he doesn't really get into sex very much in this novel, but obviously he's touching on drugs here, which in the late 60s would be very prominent in people's minds. Did you like it? Did you think it was, I don't know, meaningful, thoughtful? I am obviously affectionate for it in ways that maybe don't entirely make sense to you folks, but I don't know. What are your thoughts? I thought it was just okay. No offense. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fair enough. It wasn't like my favorite ever, but it wasn't horrible. I got some enjoyment out of it. Do you see it running a productive line between what you might expect to read in, say, a literary fiction class versus what you want to read in a science fiction novel? Yeah, it does incorporate some aspects of the literary 
probably to you, this seems like a stupid question because by now we're so accustomed to reading science fiction in a literary sense that a lot of profs, not even myself, are using genre fiction stuff in even classes that are just like for full-on majors. And that would have been strange as late as the time when I was in college, you know. This is like the work that Delaney and other folks like him did to try and be like, hey, science fiction can be literary too. I think it was cool that Delaney was trying to prove that science fiction can be literary. Yeah, I think that... Hold up yeah. to other genres. I think that it ends up being sort of a loser's game, though, because it all ends up being a question of reception rather than production. So it makes me a little sad to then look back on something like this and be like, man, you really bashed your brains against the wall on this one. It probably would have gotten to that point anyway. I don't know. I liked it. Yeah. I mean, the extent of my sci-fi knowledge is basically Doctor Who, so. That's it's that's easy perfectly to fine. Me. I mean, I think that in a certain way, Delaney's science fiction doesn't necessarily require the same type of, I don't know what to say. It's so outsider, even though it's insider. I mean, it's not like Margaret Atwood. It's not like writing it science fiction at a completely right angle, but it is doing a very different thing. I think I appreciated the form and how it was written more than the story. For the form, I definitely recognize that he's doing something with intention, and I respect that. But as for the story, I don't know. Maybe it's cliche. Maybe I don't know what to think about it because I haven't read enough and I will never read enough. I mean, it's Moby Dick in space. That's basically like my quick, my <laughs> quick take on it. It's, it's Moby Dick in space. And it's the Moby Dick that Moby Dick wishes it would have been. It's not quite so slow. It's not quite so boring. We don't get every single thing about how stars and spaceships operate like we would with whales and shit like that in Moby Dick. But there's a lot of the same type of stuff going on. And, and I think like Moby Dick, it is really effective as a popular novel. And it's also effective as something literary or philosophical. It's the kind of thing that we can read as being about economies and the environment. It's the kind of thing that we can read as being about personal relationships. We can read it as being a mythological tale. We can read sex into it, but we also don't have to. You have been listening to Professor Frank Fucile, research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily, and special guest Leah Woodward. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. song in today's episode is 10th Planet on Hot Snake's album Automatic Midnight. Make sure to troll us on Twitter at Pointless Scent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. And if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the links in the description for both our Tee Public merch and our Patreon. We'll see you next time with another episode of The Pointless Century. Century.